Welcome to The Kitchen Stories. It's been a while, but we're back for another season of great conversations exploring food from all angles. Over the past year or so, many of us have felt the effects of the coronavirus pandemic through no longer being able to get together with loved ones. From major holidays and weekly Shabbat dinners to casual last-minute shared meals, we've all missed gathering around food in person. Despite the challenges, we've still found ways to connect over food from distance meals when safe to holiday meals over Zoom. Looking back at these various gathering styles, whether in person or online, what's something every great gathering needs besides food? A host! We're kicking off this season of The Kitchen Stories with an episode all about hosting gatherings that revolve around food. On today's episode, you'll hear about family traditions, reflections on the role of shared meals in Jewish practice and identity, and what it is about bringing people together that brings the host joy. And you might just pick up some tips for setting up a successful buffet along the way. I also called up an expert to get some insight into the psychology of sharing food and playing host. Oh, and speaking of hosts, podcasts need them too. The Kitchen Stories is produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia, and I'm your host, Leanna Glass. Michelle Dodek is a member of the Jewish community in Vancouver, and from speaking with her, one thing in particular is clear. Michelle loves to gather and host around Jewish food. Ever since she moved to Vancouver from Saskatoon in the mid-90s, hosting and Jewish food have been an important part of Michelle's life. She worked for Hillel for a time, serving hot lunches and Shabbat dinners to UBC students looking for a connection to Judaism. More recently, Michelle went to culinary school to explore ways to take her love of Jewish food further. Global pandemic aside, she has always hosted Jewish holiday meals in her home, from weekly Shabbat dinners to Passover seders to meals in her sukkah. One of the traditions Michelle told me about is the Big Lunch, an annual Rosh Hashanah lunch she hosts at home. I asked Michelle to tell me about the big lunch and where the tradition comes from. In Saskatoon, people always had lunches after shul. So you would go to shul for Rosh Hashanah and you would come home to somebody's house after lunch, afterwards for lunch. And that was just, that's what everybody did there. The lunch was always a big thing and my mom always did it at home. And, and part of the draw of it was that you would, if there was somebody at synagogue that we didn't know, um, you would ask them to come home with you for lunch because it's a big buffet and it doesn't matter how many people there are. You add a few plates to the pile and it's, it works. That's what happened in Saskatoon. That's what everybody did. So that's what I was used to. Like that was my, and my mom was always an excellent host. So I just, I was used to that concept and I carried it forward when I got married for the first couple of years that we were married and living in Vancouver, we lived in an apartment and we didn't have too many people because we didn't have very much space, but we would have a few people. And then once we bought our house, then we, I, I convinced my husband, he, he, by the way, he is a Vancouverite. He was born here. His parents were born in Vancouver and he is not used to this kind of inviting and it, well, he didn't grow up with it. And he's also a shy person. So it was really a big shock to him to invite strangers because that was part of it for me was always that I wanted to invite strangers, not just people that we knew, but people who we didn't know people who didn't have connections like deep connections in the community, but people who wanted to be 
part of a community during a holiday. It came to be called the big lunch once I had kids because I had to call it something. And I had lots of times when I had people over for lots of events. So this was like a, it had, it had to have a name, I guess. I don't know. And we had, yeah. So we used to have, I used to always call the synagogue. And also once my kids were at Talmud Torah, I used to call the school and ask whether there were any new families who had either just joined the shul or, or had purchased tickets to come to Yontif and, you know, had expressed a desire to go to, to be invited somewhere and people would come and they would mingle. And it was usually between 60 and 80 people that I would invite. And that for that, I would have to make all the food because this, the, the whole idea was that people would come after they were finished with their, their synagogue experience. Clearly a key element of the big lunch is meeting and hosting new people. Michelle reflected a little on how that came to be. Growing up in a place like Saskatoon, we were very involved with the shul. Like my dad was president of the shul a, many, a number of times. My mom was the president of sisterhood. You know, they were involved with B'nai B'rith and all the different kinds of organizations that you can be involved with through a synagogue and Jewish life. And if there was somebody who would come to synagogue that we didn't know, it was obvious right away. It's not like here where there are, you know, congregants, lots of congregants and people don't, and not everybody knows each other. You, everybody knew everybody there. So if we saw somebody that we didn't know, it was like an automatic that we would just go up and talk to them and then ask them if they wanted to come over for dinner. So that, that was, I think also an influence just growing up in a place like Saskatoon, which was like that. Um, sometimes there were like kind of tussles over the new person like <laughs> like we had a neighbor that who would sort of she would try to get to that new person first sometimes <laughs> like a little competition sometimes but I don't know I mean it not in a bad way always in a good way like that everybody just wanted to be super welcoming and and that is that's that just carried through with me forward like to when I moved here that I wanted to continue that kind of feeling of having a warm community around me. Michelle isn't the only person who sees inviting new acquaintances to share a meal as an important part of her Jewish holiday gatherings. I also spoke to Risa Schwartzman, another member of the community who loves to bring family, friends, and strangers together around food. Risa's family has been in Vancouver since 1964 and their hosting traditions are also tied to their involvement in the Jewish community more broadly. So an important part of our family history is that we always have been, it's been important for us to always welcome people as they move into Vancouver. My mom was one of the founders of what used to be called um, the Welcome Wagon that turned into uh, the Shalom BC, which I don't think exactly exists anymore, but it was a really nice way to uh, meet people, but also help people acclimate to the city and meet people. And uh, so I always remember having new families around the table. And so that's carried on. And, and with all of our holidays, we always make sure we include people that who've maybe just immigrated or people we've just met who might not have family and make sure that around our table, that there's always someone um, getting supported that might not be, who might be alone.
Gathering around food is a meaningful part of Jewish traditions for many of us. Like I said at the beginning, every good gathering needs a host. But what is it that the host gets out of the experience? I love having people in my house. I love, I like, I don't know, I really enjoy that hustle and bustle of making sure the food is all out there. And, and I like, I like preparing. I don't know. I like preparing the table. I like laying out, using all the dishes. I have all these, you know, random things from like my Baba, who I was very, very close to, um, I have her silverware. And of course, I mean, nobody uses silverware anymore, but it's an extra set of cutlery that I need to put out when I'm having all those people. So I love setting it up and I'm just, I think about her. Um, I've always been, well, since I left home, I've really always been interested in cooking and food and, and exploring all different kinds of, well, vegetarian cuisine. And it brings me a lot of pleasure when people enjoy my food. And I, I don't know, I also kind of enjoy, this is going to sound strange maybe, but I enjoy controlling the dinner or the lunch. Like I enjoy knowing that everything that I put out there is something that I made and that there's a whole, a reason to it. I have like a whole system of how I make a buffet. Like there, there is, there is a trick to it because the thing that you make the most of, you have to put it at the beginning. Cause if you put it at the end, no one has room on their plate for it because there's a, there's a, a way that people go, right? Like they start at the plates and then they always circle a certain way. So you have to make sure that the thing that maybe is uh, something people aren't familiar with, they're not sure about, the thing you want people to try, you have to put at the beginning because they take a little bit of everything, but they won't take it if they don't have enough space on their plate. I, I also know that it is really brings a lot of nachas and joy for my parents um, to be surrounded by their grandchildren and to see that their daughter is carrying on the tradition that was very important to them. I just, I love, I love having people gathered and the, the opportunity is a Jewish holiday. Um, and it makes it just that much more special to me. Like I have people over for dinner other times of the year too. Don't get me wrong. But when it's for a Jewish holiday, I just feel like in a city like Vancouver where the community is quite big, but quite separated. I feel like it's just really, really an important part of being in community, having those holidays together. Because otherwise, I think a lot of people just, they won't connect. And I, I like to, I like to feel that I'm helping to connect them to their, to a tradition that they, they might not carry on themselves, but they feel comfortable with because they're invited to me and it's easy. They just come. Well, it's always easier to go to someone else's home um, and, and, and enjoy somebody else sharing their special dishes and, and time together with them. But ultimately being able to be sitting around your own table and sharing your food and breaking bread, as they say, with people you love or people that you are welcoming into your home it's just another way of showing love and um, in a, as a mother, a motherly way. So, I mean, today I, or last night I made some chicken soup and we have some of our staff were sick. So I 
I dropped off a, a jug of, of chicken soup. So I guess food just has, Jewish food has a way of, I think, just giving that much love to the people you care about. For Risa, holiday gatherings and sharing food are all about expressing love. Now a grandmother herself, Risa shared with me that a lot of her knowledge of Jewish food, from recipes to the importance of sharing it to the way it impacts our identity, was influenced by her baba. Food is so uh, tactile. It has all your senses involved, your smell, your taste, your visual, your memory. Uh, it, it, food touches everything and uh, brings in lots of memories. So my grandmother, um, my Baba, um, she was amazing. She was the oldest of seven children, and her dad, her grandfather was the Rebbe of a town. So she had always a lot of responsibilities, and she always took it to heart. So she would do all the holidays with us and always cooked traditional Jewish foods. And I guess my fondest memories would be sitting around uh, her Shabbat table, but also cooking with her the special foods like making blintzes and knishes and learning how to make a stretch dough and uh, and knowing that that's a part of who we are, an integral part of of giving love to your family would be to be sharing and making food for your family. My My Baba passed away many years ago and when the rabbi came to talk to the family, I told him about my Baba going into the JCC and, and teaching my entire chapter how to make hamantashen because I was talking about how strong she was and how she could bring her strength and her Judaism and her, her leadership. And she could do that uh, all at once. And the rabbi chose to tell that story at the eulogy. And then a relative's relative came up to me and said, that when she goes, that if she could be remembered for the the love that she delivered from all of her cooking, that she would be a happy person. And I think that's a little bit about what we're talking about here, that we're creating memories and I, and connecting that to our Jewish identity and and being able to through these memories, show the love that we give to the people around us. And I think that's something my Baba instilled in myself. I, I, I would never identify myself as a gastronomical Jew, which, and I think there's a lot of people out there who, who don't bring their religion or the, a lot of the culture in, but still love their Jewish food, which is great. At least they're finding some identity there. So I can't, I can't call myself a gastronomical Jew, but I think that it's a really important part of who we are. I think by any culture, food is, helps identify those special memories. Michelle and Reese's reflections highlight a lot of the personal and cultural reasons we bring people together around food. Shared meals provide meaningful gathering opportunities and touchstones throughout the year. We get to see loved ones, honor our traditions, and create new memories. Next, I wanted to take a deep dive into what's going on psychologically when we gather and share food. Luckily, I didn't have to look too far to learn more. Dr. Lara Aknin is an associate professor of psychology at Simon Fraser University. She is an associate co-editor of the World Happiness Report, and most of her research focuses on what makes people happy and what makes people generous. In particular, Dr. Aknin researches whether being generous makes people happy. I asked Dr. Aknin to discuss her findings on how generous behavior contributes to our well-being. In a lot of my work, we examine whether kindness or generosity, in particular, something we call uh, pro-social spending, which is 
very, it's a, a fancy term for spending money on others instead of yourself. To study whether financial generosity in this form is associated with and predicts or leads to higher levels of happiness. Um, it's something I've been studying for over a decade now. Uh, we started looking at young adults here in North America. When I was a grad student at UBC, we were studying UBC students. And long story short, we found that when we gave people money uh, to either spend on themselves or others, we randomly assigned some people to spend a windfall of 5 or $20 on themselves. We randomly assigned other people to spend 5 or $20 on others. And when we called them back at the end of the day, we found that those people randomly assigned to spend money on others were significantly happier. And so from there, we started conducting a number of studies to try to understand whether this was a finding that might be restricted to North America, where perhaps the average undergraduate student has extra disposable income and therefore might get you know, a small happiness boost from being kind or generous, or whether this might be a more fundamental feature of human behavior. And to do that, we've studied um, kids and adults in rich and poor countries around the world. We've studied toddlers under the age of two. Uh, we've studied ex-offenders who have committed some pretty serious felony-level offenses or higher. And I've traveled to small-scale traditional societies to examine where people are living in ways that are consistent and very similar to the ways our ancestors used to live, with no electricity, no running water, no um, formal infrastructural buildings other than uh, huts, huts and houses that are built out of local materials, farming the grounds that they live on, whether we might see similar results. And long story short is that we do. And you mentioned using money. Is that generally what you use in your experiments? Yes. So most of the research that I do focuses on pro-social spending. So this form of financial generosity um, that started as an interesting feature. When I was in graduate school, I was very interested in generosity and my supervisor at the time, Elizabeth Dunn, was very interested in how people could use their money in ways that might make them happy. And so together, we started studying um, ways in which people use their money to help others. And that was how we started studying pro-social spending. I think that was just lucky happenstance, uh, because there are many ways in which we can help other people. We can give our time, we can give our advice, we can give our blood, we can give our food. And so we started studying financial generosity because of these combined and overlapping interests. But I think financial generosity is just one of the many ways in which we can help other people. Do you suspect that a lot of the, the benefits for well-being and happiness that come from sharing money and being generous with money, do, do we get those from the other forms of generosity that you mentioned as well? Yes. So uh, in general, I think um, when we engage in costly, generous behavior um, or, or, or helpful behavior more broadly, I think um, in many occasions, not all of them, we get this warm glow of giving, if you will. All right. So we have established that being generous makes us happy. Keeping our focus on sharing food, is there a way to test whether this finding holds up? It turns out Dr. Acknan did just that, with the help of some toddlers, a puppet, and a bunch of fishy crackers. In 2012, we published this paper examining whether young kids might also feel the emotional rewards that we had seen in adults when it comes to engaging in generous behavior. Uh, it was a very fun experiment. 20 kids that were just under the age of two, they were 22 months at the time, came into the lab independently with a parent, of course, um, and were taken to a lab at UBC where they went through a brief experiment and took about maybe three, four, five minutes that consisted of five key phases. So after a warm-up round where they felt safe in the lab and comfortable interacting with puppets and adults, um, they were introduced to a new puppet named Monkey, who was a stuffed animal monkey, and they were told that Monkey liked eating treats, and they were allowed to pet, touch, and interact with him. That was the first phase. 
Then in the next phase of the experiment, um, the child and both monkey were given a plastic bowl for treats, and the experimenter then proceeded to give eight treats to the child. These were treats that kids often like. They were goldfish crackers or Teddy Graham crackers. Then uh, the next three phases were presented in counterbalanced orders. That meant that they came in random order across the kids. But everybody saw all the three phases. It was just a mishmash of what order they might have been presented in. So in one phase, kids were asked to observe as the experimenter gave one treat to the puppet. In another phase, the children were asked to engage in what we called non-costly giving. And so this was a phase in which the experimenter said, oh, look, I found one more treat. Will you give this treat to monkey? And so the child would take the goldfish cracker or the Teddy Graham cracker that the experimenter provided and gave it to the puppet. And then in a final, in a final phase, the child was asked to engage in what we called costly giving. And this time the child was asked to give one of their own treats, either the goldfish or the Teddy Graham cracker to the same puppet. Now, every time Monkey received a treat, he ate it in a very loud and excitable fashion by sticking his face in the bowl and making loud eating noises. And adults obviously know that a stuffed animal puppet can't eat the treats, but we convinced the kids that he could by um, using his nose to push the treat through a false bottom corner in the bowl so that when he lifted his head, the treat had disappeared and the kids were pretty convinced that he had in fact eaten the treat. As you can imagine, it would have been pretty challenging to get the toddlers to self-report their feelings during the experiment. So the researchers filmed the whole thing, then went back and evaluated the children's facial expressions during each phase. One of the central questions was whether giving or receiving would make the toddlers happier. And what the researchers found by looking at how much the kids smiled and how big those smiles were was that giving a treat to monkey made the kids happier than receiving a treat for themselves. And beyond that, there were even more smiles and bigger smiles when the kids were giving one of their own treats to Monkey, as opposed to giving the new treat the experimenter had found to the puppet. What this means is that costly giving, or giving where there's an element of self-sacrifice, is more rewarding than non-costly giving. While this finding is consistent with what Dr. Acknan has found to be true with adults, measuring costly versus non-costly giving is a little bit trickier when grown-ups are involved. It's consistent with some of the larger evidence we have seen in that people who spend more in an average month on other people, so in, in other words, are giving more money away in a way that you might think is more costly, um, are also reporting higher levels of happiness than people who give less money away. But in, we haven't been able to test that question in adults experimentally, in part because uh, we can't make people give away their own money. Uh, so we can really only track their, their own spending choices, which is uh, revealing but not perfect because it, w when we see a correlation between higher levels of generosity and happiness in the population, which we frequently do, it's, it's one way of explaining that is that generosity, higher levels of generosity make people happier, um, but there are alternative explanations as well. It could be that happier people are more likely to give money away or that there's some other variable that we haven't captured that's responsible for the relationship. And so you really need experimental studies to test this question of causality with adults. Um, and I think if we were going to test that in terms of like real costliness, it would be pretty expensive. But the data do align with that. Like for instance, um, when people are giving um, blood and food and sometimes like more, if you might think of costly advice, like high stakes advice, in general, it seems to align with this, ad this idea that the more valuable, the more costly, and sometimes the greater sense of self-sacrifice, the greater the emotional reward we get from giving it away. 
And the idea there is because um, it aligns with these theories of what we might call a functional account of emotion. The idea that emotions are there to reward things that are good for our survival um, and help us um, kind of navigate our, our lives. And, and pro-sociality or kind and generous behavior is one thing that probably very likely helped our ancestors survive. Um, and it provides a much clearer cue of our generosity um, when it comes with a personal sense of sacrifice than if it costs us absolutely nothing. That's really cool. So if it's better for the community and I, I feel like I'm personally contributing, that'll make me feel good. Or I guess in terms of, of food and, and meals, if I invite everybody over and I cooked all the food, mm-hmm. that'll make me feel better than if I host a potluck. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. All else being equal, probably. Yeah. I guess we don't know how good of a cook I am, but <laughs> <laughs> assuming I'm as good as everyone that who would have brought something to the potluck. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that actually wasn't where I was going with it, but that probably is true as well. <laughs> So there we have it. Hosting a meal or being generous with our space and with our food has the power to make us happy. Thinking back to Michelle's big lunch from earlier, Dr. Acknan's findings reinforce why a tradition like that brings so much joy to everyone involved, and especially to Michelle. I like having a fancy table. I love the way it looks. And I love having, I just love having the people come and enjoy my food. Thanks to our guests for coming on today's episode, and thank you for listening. The Kitchen Stories is produced by the Jewish Museum and Archives of British Columbia on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. You can find more episodes of our podcast at jewishmuseum.ca, on Apple Podcasts, and on Spotify. See you next time!